Welcome to Now You Know, a podcast designed and developed to take the controversial and complicated questions facing both faith and the Catholic Church, and giving ourselves the space and time to explore and come to a deeper understanding of these topics. My name is Father Cody Williams, and I am your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening. Do I have to take the Bible literally? This final question is the last one of this series, and one that's surprisingly important and kind of complicated. And it's one of the questions I get asked quite frequently, so that anyone who's interested in questions such as, do I have to take Genesis seriously, where the world is created in seven days, or what parts of Jesus' words are fact, true, law, versus a saying, or an analogy, or a point he's trying to make. These are all critical questions and center around this very important point. Do I have to take the Bible literally? Before we go into specific examples, which I eventually want to get into, I want to talk about what I mean by both the Bible and what I mean by literally, because those two points are exceptionally important. To start out with, I'm going to take a very quick overview of the entirety of the Bible and its creation, so we understand the context of it and also how all the things developed. There's a reason for this. The principal reason why I'm doing a quick history of the Bible is because a lot of people have impressed the Bible in that the Bible is one solid text, like I'm reading a Harry Potter novel, in which there's a beginning, an end, there's a flow, a structure to it, and that the whole thing is meant to be one cohesive whole. That is largely not the case. The Bible is a compilation of many books that span a huge amount of time, around 2,000 years, We date the beginning of the Abraham saga around 1800 BC, and then the final book of the Bible was written around 120 AD. So that puts us right around 2,000 years. That's an incredible amount of history. Think of it this way. From the moment of Jesus' birth to the common day was 2,000 years. A lot has happened in that time. So clearly, the Bible isn't chronicling every single event that happened in those 2,000 years but isolated moments, important moments, things that are worth noting. And that core message is critical for understanding what the Bible's purpose is, which is, first and foremost, to explain the history of the people, their experience of God, and how they've come to understand the God they have experienced. These are the three most important points of the Bible. So to start out with, the Bible for the most part, was an oral tradition for many, many centuries, until around the 6th century. This date is a little bit debated by many scholars, but most scholars say that the first evidence of written text happened during the Babylonian exile, around the year 685-586, and then into the 3rd century, the land of Babylonia, or the Babylonians, rose to power and conquered all of the northern and southern tribes, all of Jerusalem, Judea, that entire region, sending the Jewish people into exile. While in exile, they had a moment to ponder their history and to recognize one important thing. They have to remember it. They have to have some way in which they can recall, remember, tell the next generation the history of their people. And that's when they wrote down what is known as the historical books and the books of the law, namely Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the books of law, and then the books of the historical books include Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. Although these books could have been written before that point, we date that moment, the sixth century, as the moment of the first recorded 
evidence that they were writing these things down. So that means for, what are we at, 1,200 years, most of it was simply oral tradition, passed down by one person telling the other person for centuries. These events already took place, though. So what is the importance of this? So the first five books, known as the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these books were meant to form the core of what the Jewish people believed, how they were to act, the first recognition of who God is. These books stand in a very special point in that they are law books. And for that reason, they are seen as ways the people come to know their God. The next chunk of books, the historical books, Judges, Joshua, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ruth, and then we're going to get to some books in a moment here that are in that same category, are meant to tell the people the story of the people of Israel. Namely, what it was like once they entered the land of Israel, how they came to understand God in this context, and how their history developed. That's the core of those books. Now, around the same time, the 6th century, another chunk of books was written that are foundational for understanding what is going on, and that is the prophetic books. The prophetic books are the story of the prophets who were doing one of three things, either calling out the sins of the people that led to the exile, calling out the issues of the people while in exile, or giving them courage, such as chapters 40 through 45 of the book of the prophet Isaiah, courage about what is going on and hope that everything will be restored again reminding them of who God is, reminding them that they are God's people, reminding them that this will eventually end. Or their books after the exile, bringing people back to the covenant, bringing them back to the law, bringing them back to temple worship, and calling them back to fidelity to their God. That's the core of the prophetic books. If I were to summarize it in one line, it would be how to remain faithful to the God who is their God. So that leads up to over three-quarters, if not more, of the Old Testament, in which we have the history books, the prophetic books, and the law books that form the core of what we understand to be the biblical text. There are two more chunks of biblical text that I need to mention, though, and one is called the wisdom books. The wisdom books are these books, such as the Psalms, Proverbs, Wisdom, Sirach, Job, that aren't history, they're not law, but they are trying to express that one central reality. Who is our God? Now, these books have a convoluted and complex history. The books of Psalms were probably combinations of poetry or hymns that were sung during worship or during feasts and stuff that were compiled into a book. The other wisdom books are trying to explain what it means to be God's people. What am I to do? Who am I to follow? How am I supposed to understand God? And for the most part, the first chunk, first half of them, are really about who God is and how to be faithful to the law. The second half were developed many years later during the Greek age of the rule of Jerusalem. During the Greek age, new philosophies came in that were a lot more abstract. And this abstraction of their theology led to a pondering of many different things. One of the big things to ponder was suffering. How does God save the, the wicked? Or, who are the sinners? Also, a more, in more abstract, abstract sense would be like Lady Wisdom, or the sense of God in a more philosophical or mental kind of exercise. These books developed during the Greek age, which would be around the 3rd to, to 2nd century BC. 
There's a few more books, and I need a little bit of a historical point, historical point before I can really explain these books well. During the Greek Age, Alexander the Great rose to power and really led to the unification of Greece. One of the main things he loved was learning and philosophy, and he was the one who developed the, Alex the Library of Alexandria, that great library that has been lost to history. In this, this age, he did one thing. He wanted the Jewish people to write down all of their scriptures in Greek. So, he got 70 elders together, and they all translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. In a rather, in a rather miraculous turn, all 70 of them had the exact same translation. This translation became known as the Septuagint. When the modern reformers of the 17th century went back to try and discover what books were meant to be in the Bible and what ones are authentic to the Bible, they generally tended to go back to the Hebrew text. Now, the Hebrew text didn't have all of the books that are in the most complete Bible. The books that are missing were those written only in Greek, were written during the Greek age, or d dealt with issues that happened during the Greek and Roman times, such as the books of Maccabees. Therefore, they took out certain books that were considered part of the canon until that point. The Catholic Church, however, goes back to the Septuagint, which has the Greek books as well as the Hebrew books, and maintains those seven books. We're not quite done yet. We still haven't gotten to the New Testament. The New Testament is broken down into three main chunks. We have St. Paul's letters, we have the Gospels, and the other books or letters. The first books of the New Testament were the letters of St. Paul, written between 48 and 70 AD, depending on what scholar you ask. These letters were letters written to specific churches addressing specific issues that Paul had already, or at least had some sort of contact with, and therefore was addressing concerns. That's the point of those letters. The Gospels, on the other hand, were written to a group of people who wanted to know the life and ministry of Jesus. The tricky part we have is we think of the Gospels as biographies. They're not biographies, they're moments of salvation history. Their goal is to tell the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They're meant to say to us, believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who rose from the dead, the one who gives us life. And so their whole point is to make that point abundantly clear, that Jesus is the Messiah. And each of the four gospel writers has a different perspective that guides us to a broader perspective of who Jesus is as the Messiah, not as a biography. The last letters of the Old, of, sorry, the New Testament are various letters written to different communities. Some are written by St. Paul, some are not, such as the letter to the Hebrews. These have different concerns, issues, things that they're trying to address. And finally, we have the book of Revelation, a rather complicated and curious book that is very mystical and confusing and complicated. But it find, finds its place at the very end, now chronicling the entirety of God's interaction with humanity from the beginning of creation to the end of the age. Now that I've gone through quite a purview of the entirety of Scripture and the history of it, I want to look at different kinds of texts that are within the Bible so that we can get a sense of the different forms and structures before we talk about literal interpretation. On the most basic and fundamental level, we have stories. There are chunks of the Bible that are just telling stories. These include the historical books, parts of the Gospels, parts of the Psalms, and also parts of the prophetic books. 
They are telling the story of the people. As a story, we read them as a story. These are the events that happened. And they're chronicling them as they remember them to tell us something about who God is. Another common form of text we find in the Bible is one of exhortation. It's a command or a story, not in the sense of like a storytelling, but more of the sense of telling the people something they need to hear. The best example is St. Paul's writings. St. Paul is telling the people something they need to hear, a theological point, an exhortation of like command, you got to do this, or an exhortation of plea, stop being like that. The same thing works with the books of law, such as the books of Exodus and Numbers, in which they're experiencing a story, but it's really meant to tell them a message, and within the story is a specific clear message of what the people are supposed to do. These are exhortations. We also have law books that are clearly law. The book of Leviticus is a wonderful example of this. In that book, we have you shall, you shall not mentality. Also, this is the way things are to be. Those are law. They are very clearly delineated as books of law, and therefore we can read them as law. Thou shall, thou shall not. The final type of writing, which is the most complicated to interpret, is those of wisdom books or uh, theological literature. They are written in kind of a fanciful, that's probably not the right word, they're written kind of more of the sense of uh, like a proverb or a saying, something in which when you hear it, it, the meaning is not completely clear from the first reading. It takes some time to mull over it and let the words sink in to the point where the message is made clear. And even though we may understand the core message, there can be several different messages underneath this one particular saying that are given different times and places. So therefore, we have to be careful in all these different types of writings when we interpret them. When we interpret a story, it is clear from the story that it is a story. They tell it in a storytelling fashion of a beginning, middle, and end. There is a clear point to it that is trying to draw our attention to something about the mystery of who God is, or something about the people of Israel, or something important in the life of ministry of Jesus. These are all critical points for understanding the story, and therefore we should look at it as a story. When it comes to an exhortation, like something St. Paul wrote, we are clearly looking at it as he's writing with a point, that he addresses the people, he says the good things that they did, he says the thing that they need to talk about, and then tells them how to fix it. That's just the structure of it. That's how it should be interpreted. That's what St. Paul intends by his writing. So when we go into it, we should be looking for the main point, what he's trying to address, his theological points in the midst of it, and then also what he intends the people to do. That's how we should interpret it. When it comes to something like a law, it should be kind of clear to us that it's a law. Thou shall, thou shall not is the clearest indication of a law. But even this is the way things should be, or this is the structure of something, would make it very clear that God intends for this to be the way the people act. That's how we interpret it. This is a law. Thou shall follow my law. When it comes to wisdom literature, and we have like a proverb or a saying, it's far more complicated. Because there's usually one core message behind it that we have to wrestle with to find, but there's also several other messages underlying it that all have equal validity, but not necessarily a clear point to that particular saying. 
In all these different cases, we have to be careful how we interpret it so that we understand the core message and what is the proper interpretation given what the author intends for us to say or to hear. That being said, this is the most important form of literal interpretation. There are a couple other forms of interpretation that are worth noting. These are not literal interpretations. These are our interpretations. I can read a chunk of story and get a whole new message out of it than what the author intended. But that's just me. That's me reading into it what I want to say. Theologians call this eisegesis. It means that I read into the story what I want it to say. The opposite of eisegesis is exegesis, reading out of the story what it, the author intends for me to hear or what it, he intends for me to know. Let me give you an example of this. The book Harry Potter, or the entire series, is meant for me to hear the story of a guy who found out he's a wizard and then went and fought, fought the dark, dark Lord Voldemort. That's the point of the story. If I were to read out of it, I read out of it the journey of a boy who learns to become a wizard and learns to fight against the dark forces of Voldemort. If I read into it what I wanted to say, I could say, the story of Harry Potter is about this boy who realizes the dark forces that are upon him and fights against the issues of the world through um, getting together with friends and knowing the ways of the world that he can fight against injustice and problems of the world and actually win against them. I highly doubt J.K. Rowling intended for us to interpret this in light of a social justice kind of bent. I think it's meant to be a fictional story. Again, that's the difference between exegesis and exegesis. Reading out of the story what the author intends versus reading into the story what I wanted it to say. So before we go into some examples of issues that people run into when they interpret the Bible, let's talk about the word literally. In an ironic twist, we use the word literally quite frequently in a lot of statements that really aren't literal. In, a common, in our common culture, we use the word literally to mean a number of different things, such as really or this happened, such as he literally fell off the car. Did he literally fall off the car or did it look like he tripped? That's the, the use of literally in different contexts. When I mean literally in this context, I mean what did it, the author intend for us to read out of it? What did the author intend by their writing? This is literal. What should I get out of that writing, given what it was intended for? That's how I'm going to use the word literal. So when I say, how do we understand the Bible literally, what we're going to try and do is figure out what did the author intend from the structure and the form of that writing, or from the core message that's behind it. And then, from the literal interpretation of it, how am I supposed to understand the passage given the structure, the core, what the author intends for me to know? Let me give you some examples. In the first chapter of the book of Genesis, one of the most commonly cited issues when it comes to literal interpretation of the Bible, we have the story of Genesis. Sorry, the story of creation. In the story of creation, we know that there are seven days. These seven days have a structure and form to them. I'm going to read a chunk of it, and then I'm going to summarize the rest of it. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless wasteland, and darkness covered the abyss, while a mighty wind swept over the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw how good the light was, then God separated the light from the darkness. 
God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Thus evening came, and morning followed, the first day. Then God said, Let there be a dome in the middle of the waters, to separate one body of water from the other. And so it happened. God made the dome, and it separated the water from the, above the dome from the water below it. God called the dome the sky. Evening came, and morning followed, the second day. Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into a single basin, so that the dry land may appear. And so it happened. The water under the sky was gathered into its basin, then the, and the dry land appeared. God called the dry land the earth, and the basin of the water he called the sea. God saw how good it was. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth vegetation, every kind of plant that bears seed, and every kind of tree that bears fruit on earth with its seed in it. And so it happened. The earth brought forth every kind of plant that bears seed, and every kind of fruit tree on the earth that bears fruit with its seed in it. God saw how good it was. Evening came, and morning followed, the third day. The fourth day is when he creates the sun, the stars, and the moon. The fifth day is when he creates sea creatures and birds of the air. And the sixth day is when he creates humans, and the seventh day he rests. Yes, I paraphrased. There's a reason why I paraphrased. So let's be very blunt. If I were to read this exactly as written, there's several conclusions I'll reach. First of all, that God did not create out of nothing. There's a formless waste, and he just shaped it. That seems to be a problem. Second of all, we also have a problem that plants were created before there's light. How do the plants survive without light? Another important question. But that is not the core message. Now, there's several ways we can look at this passage to help us understand the core message, meaning, and structure of it. So we have a clear structure to it. There are seven days, and after the first six days, there's a tag at the end of it. Evening came and morning followed the first day. So that for each of the first six days, we have this very clear structure of evening, morning, the end of the day, except for the seventh. There's no end to the seventh day. In the midst of this, we have a progression of thought. We have nothing into, or formless waste, into the light and darkness, and then into the dome of the earth and dome of the sky, and then plants. Then we have sun, moon, stars, animals, sea creatures, birds, then the last of them, humans. In the midst of these chunks, we have actually two main cycles that happen. We have two parallel structures. Day four is the light and the darkness. Day, sorry, day one is the light and the darkness. Day four is the sun, moon, and stars. Both are creations of light. Day two is the sky and the earth. Then day five is the creatures that live in the sky and the sea. Day three is the plants, the first point of life. Day six is the last point of life, humans. There's a parallel structure there. Each of the three days pinnacles at life, leading to the last pinnacle on the sixth day being human life, the pinnacle of God's creation. Therefore, the point of this reading from the book of Genesis is meant to tell us one important thing. God is the author of life. God creates all life. Humans are the pinnacle of all life, and life is a pinnacle of his creation. That's the core message. Now, structurally speaking, this particular passage has almost a call response to it. As though we're hearing the day come, and then everyone repeats at the very end, evening came and morning followed the first day. 
almost as if it's a ritual or a structure or some sort of telling of a story, a way for people to understand who God is and how he created. All these things are essential for understanding God, who is the creator. Let me find another passage for you. In Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we meet Adam and Eve, the people who um, led to lots of problems and are also often misinterpreted. I'm going to read a chunk of it. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals that the Lord God had made. The serpent asked the woman, Did God really tell you not to eat of, from any of the trees in the garden? The woman answered the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the tree of the fruit the fruit of the tree of the middle of the garden that God said you shall not eat it or even touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die. No, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will like be like gods who know what is good and what is evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eyes, and desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she said, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. After this, God found out, was mad at them, cursed them so that they must toil for their food all the days of their life, and made the, birth, the process of giving birth even more painful, implying it was already painful, and the serpent now no longer has legs, although it once did. Kind of looks like a dragon if you think about it. So how do we understand this? Is women the root of all evil? Doesn't seem like it because Adam got quite a severe punishment. He has to toil for his food, constantly tilling the earth and is not just freely given any longer. Whereas the woman has increased birthing pains, implying she already had some. Now women, if you disagree with me on this, that's fine. You may have the harder part of it. Nevertheless, both were equally punished to some extent. Yet the rest of the historic, the rest of the biblical tradition makes one point clear: Adam is the cause of sin, not Eve. Even though Eve was the one who took the fruit. So how do we interpret this? What is the point of it? The point of it is to show that humans kind of desire to become gods, and we will go after our own pleasures against God's will. And when we go against God's will, not follow His laws, there are punishments for it. And we are all punished when that happens. Not just one single person, but everyone gets affected by it, for they are thrown out of the garden. And we also see the beginnings of temptation, how temptation works. Oh, it does look nice. Yeah, that looks great. I don't see any problem with this. Even though God said no, we see something good in it. These are all parts of the interpretation. But the core message is, we went against God's law for whatever reason that might have been, it's not incredibly clear from the passage, and because of that, there was a punishment that led down to the generations, leading up to something more massive and important. But that's really the core message behind all of that. Let's turn to the New Testament in some places where people struggled as well. In Matthew chapter 14, we have the feeding of the 5,000, where, as we'll read in a moment, there are 5,000 people that meet Jesus as he's walking around. It's actually quite a bit more than 5,000. And they are hungry. Thus it reads, When Jesus heard of it, he withdrew in a boat to a deserted place by himself. The crowds heard of this and followed him on foot from their towns. When he disembarked and saw the vast crowd, his heart was moved with pity for them, and he cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples approached him and said, 
This is a deserted place, and it is already late. Dismiss the crowds so that they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, There is no need for them to go away. Give them some food yourselves. But they said to him, Five loaves and two fishes are all that we have. He said, Then he said, Bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he said the blessing, broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples, who in turn gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up the fragments left over, twelve worker baskets full. Those who ate were about five thousand men, not counting women and children. So, people aren't all that critical, considering they only counted the men, not the women and the children, meaning there are far more than 5,000 people here, probably closer to 10 or 15,000. And they had five loaves and two fish. This was the core point of this passage. So, what is it? It's a story. They're telling the story of what Jesus did. Does that mean it didn't happen? Well, we wouldn't imply that. Stories have some element of truth, even if they are fictitious. They're building off something. And for them to include this means that there's a point to it that's important for the story. In the event that everything happened, that exactly as stated, then there's a broader, more important picture that happened. If it's truly fictitious and they made up this story, then there's a theological point they're trying to make. So let's play with the idea that this is a fictitious story. It didn't really happen. What is the core message they're trying to get out of this? The core message is, Jesus is the one who supplies the food for the people. It wasn't the people who did everything. Jesus, through the blessing of the bread and the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, was able to feed everyone. Some people claim that everyone brought their lunches and were able to eat. But if everyone's hungry and doesn't have food and they need to go buy food, clearly that doesn't work with the passage. We're not interpreting it literally. Literally, they don't have food, except for the five loaves and two fish. And therefore, they need food. And Jesus does something to give them food, and everyone's satisfied with this very little food, which is strange, and that there's still more than enough left over. So let's say this is a miracle, and this story happened exactly as written. What is the point of it? The point is this. When we bring our gifts to Jesus, he makes them greater, to the point where he will satisfy our every need if we give him what we need, and we tell him what we need, to the point where even if we give him everything, he will give us even more than we gave him. We went from five loaves and two fish to twelve wicker baskets. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one who will give us food. He is the one who supplies our food. He is the one that will care for all of his people. He is the one that makes sure that everyone is satisfied. Here is what is intended from this passage. All of those things come out clearly in the passage, even though they're not explicitly stated. Let's look at one more passage before I conclude this, and that's Matthew 23, verse 9. I'll read the whole chunk so we get a sense of the full structure of it. So in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and the people and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. Therefore do and observe all things whatsoever they tell you, but do not follow their example. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to carry, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they will not lift a finger to move them. All their works are performed to be seen. They widen their flag trees and lengthen their tassels. They love places of honor at banquets, seats of honor at synagogues, greetings in marketplaces, and the salutation of rabbi. 
As for you, do not be called rabbi. You have but one father, teacher, and you are all brothers. Call no one on earth your father. You have but one father in heaven. Do not be called master. You have but one master, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It goes on for another 20 verses, but I stop there because we get a sense of it already. So what is Jesus doing? He's speaking to the crowds. He's teaching. How do we know that? It starts out by saying, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples, saying, This is not a story. We don't have a structure, beginning, middle, and end, with a progression of thought. We don't have a telling of the people's story. We have law books, kind of. We have sayings. They're more like wisdom sayings than they would be laws, because they don't have the structure of thou shalt, thou shalt not. They more have things to mull over, things to ponder. So the question is, what are we pondering? We start out by pondering the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, who tell people to do things that they don't do themselves. Therefore, the starting point is, we should not do things that we are unwilling to do ourselves, or that cause hypocrisy in our lives. What are the next chunks? We should not give people burdens they cannot carry and not help them. And then, we should... Not strive for places of honor, but strive for places of humility. Not strive to be the greatest, but strive to be like Jesus, who is the humble one. Therefore, given the fact of humility, the following statements make sense. If I'm willing to be called teacher and take the exalted role of teacher, I should not strive for that, but we should all be brothers. If I take the exalted role of taking the place of the Father, who is in heaven, then I have made myself God. Because if we interpret this poorly, we can't even call our own biological fathers father, otherwise we are going against God. So we should not take a role that is beyond us or be above us. The same thing works with master. We should not be called master as a role beyond what I should be called or what I have been given the title of, but should always strive to take the lowest. In the Catholic tradition, this causes a lot of problems for people that hear this phrase, Call no man on earth father, for you have but one father in heaven. But that's not the point Jesus is trying to make. He's trying to make the point that God is the highest supreme. We should look to him for everything and not give ourselves our own titles just to exalt ourselves. Conversely, I, who am called father, am called father because I'm the father of my children, who are my parishioners, and am in that particular role of relationship. It's not that I want to usurp the role of God the Father. Neither do I say I have no role or I have no authority but this is something that's been given to me as a way of understanding my relationship with my people. If I were to strive for it on my own and try to be called father of a group, that would be a title beyond me, and therefore Jesus' words apply. Just like, why would I want to be called master unless I had slaves under me, which would then mean that I'm doing something unjust? I should not be called master because I am a master of nothing. God is the master. These things are worth pondering. That's where we get stuck. We need to ponder them. They are not laws. They are words of wisdom that Jesus gives us to help us understand his ways and who he is. So I've given you three, four examples of passages from the Bible that usually cause tension or trouble for people and how to interpret them literally. Our goal in literally interpreting the Bible, in other words, interpreting it literally, not literally interpreting the Bible, is to understand the core message the author who wrote that text is trying to tell us. 
Is it a story? Is it an exhortation? Is it a wisdom literature? Is it a law book? What does he intend for me to know? How does that relate to God? And how do I understand all of this together? That when I get the core message and I see the structure of the passage and I get a sense of what it's supposed to mean, then I get a true sense of what I'm supposed to get out of that passage and can interpret it well. Because that's our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to hear God speak to us and to know his ways, and not to interpret it on my own or to think that I know what's best, but to listen, to ponder, to try to grasp God's ways through interpreting the Bible literally as God would have intended it. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or requests for topics, please email me at cwilliams at ctkmsla.org. Now You Know is hosted by Father Cody Williams, produced and edited by Jake Sheridan, written by Father Cody Williams. Music for today's show was provided by freemusicarchive.org. A special thank you to the artist Scott Holmes for their music on today's show. 